Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. For today's interview, Kellen and I have Margaret Killjoy on the podcast. Margaret is a transfeminine author, musician, and podcaster living in the Appalachian Mountains. She's the author of A Country of Ghosts, as well as Daniel Kane's series of novellas, and is the host of the community and individual preparedness podcast, Live Like the World is Dying. We were really excited to be able to pick Margaret's brain on her experience in preparing in sort of a non-traditional way. And we felt like her attitude towards resiliency and community preparedness would really strike a chord with our listeners. Okay, Margaret Killjoy, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Kellen and I have uh, talked about you a lot. We're really excited um, about this interview because we have a lot of listeners who they understand the issues that we're facing. And they're grateful to us for being able to express what it is that's going to possibly happen and, and how it might happen and why. But they have this question of, well, now what? What do we do about it? And so we thought it'd be great to have you on the show to talk a little bit about the what can be done. Um, you have a podcast um, that we mentioned here earlier in, in your bio called Live Like the World is Dying. What motivated you to start that podcast? Uh, at, at the end of 2019, I, I've always been a little bit of a, a prepper or whatever. It comes from different backgrounds. Um, uh, I wasn't the only trans girl who was in the Boy Scouts. Um, in fact, actually, my best friend in Boy Scouts came out as trans long before I did, um, you know, and, and the motto there is be prepared. And, and I actually had a very good experience in Boy Scouts and that the sense of preparedness has always been something that has stuck with me. I spent most of my twenties living off grid. Well, 
actually I've been living off grid until about uh, six months ago and I'm in my late thirties. Um, but I, I lived out of a backpack, out of a van, traveling, hopping trains badly, hitchhiking, all of that stuff for a long time. And so uh, preparedness is just absolutely part of life in that time, in, in that kind of situation when you don't expect to have things that you can rely on. And so that was always a very natural thing for me. But then I've been a little bit more apocalyptic about climate change than most of the people I'm around. And, and sometimes that feels very alienating. And I kind of wanted to reach out and try and find other people who are feeling similarly to me while avoiding the, the traditional prepper community, which is not inherently right-wing or inherently toxic, but it focuses on a lot of things that I don't really care much about, like burying gold or, you know, stockpiles of ammunition or something like that. And I mean, I have nothing against stockpiles of ammunition, but it's, it's not the answer or anything. And so I decided to start a podcast about it. And I recorded like maybe three episodes before the pandemic hit. And so in many ways, I was in a very good position because all of a sudden everyone started feeling a little bit more apocalyptic as well. Um, but then it was also funny because some of the episodes I recorded, I just didn't air for another like year or so because they just didn't uh, matter anymore in this all consuming context of COVID-19. But yeah, I just realized I wanted to um, learn how to express a bunch of the, the stuff I'd been learning, the stuff I've been thinking about. And one of my favorite ways of learning, I'm, I'm sure you all are familiar with this. My favorite way of learning is, is you just find someone who knows something about something and then you just like call them up or, you know, interview them. You just ask them to explain things. And, and most people are willing to, and, and that's how I've started most of my different interests. Um, you know, my work as a fiction writer started by reaching out to different authors and doing a book of interviews with authors about the ways that activism and specifically anarchism relate to fiction. And, and so I just wanted to do that with prepping and community and individual preparedness as I just wanted to find people who I could call up and be like, Tell me about antibiotics. Tell me about talking to your neighbors. Tell me about community organizing. Tell me about all these things. So prior to 2019, you had already been putting these things in practice or was that kind of when it all started for you? So it's always been a, a little bit of a um, something I've always done on some level. You know, I, I've always found tools to be the most valuable thing to have rather than the things that the tools make, you know? Uh, especially when I like, again, like lived in a vehicle or something, but it was actually, I want to say 2016 or so a friend of mine, who's an environmental engineer who studies the way that food is distributed across the country called me and was like, Hey, you should hold on to some more food than usual this year. There's a decent chance of famine, like not a, like famine is coming. Everyone's going to starve. But, you know, if any given year our chance of famine, I'm making this up, this is no longer my friend's words. You know, if any given year, the chance of famine is like 1%, that year it was like 5 or 10%, you know? And, and so that's when I kind of started diverting some of my very small income towards buckets of beans and rice and things like that. And, you know, I, I've, I usually live in communal situations. I don't currently, but it's just been funny because I've, I've usually been the only person who's on this tip with the people that I'm around. And so, you know, everyone sort of begrudgingly puts up with the stockpile of food in the basement or under the kitchen counter or whatever. So there's obviously a really sort of negative mainstream view of prepping. And I've noticed in some of your writing, you've talked about the word prepping itself. And we actually, I feel like we're similar in this because when we did our first episodes on on preparedness and just very basic preparedness, we talk more about resiliency, 
we tried to kind of stray away from the word prepping. Why do you think that negative view is there? Where does it come from? And how do we solve that? It's a combination of things. And for the most part, I think that prepping deserves the negative connotations that it has. Um, By and large, the, the existing prepping community falls into one of two camps that I both, I have no interest in either. And one is what I would call the bunker mentality, which is the idea of get ready to take care of yourself in your bunker with all of your stuff, like you and your family, you know, maybe at most like some of your close friends or whatever, and get ready to ride out the apocalypse. And I think that this is wrong for a thousand reasons. One is that the apocalypse is not an event. It's a process. Um, one is that sticking your head in the sand while society is reforming is a really bad idea. Like, you know, if, if like weird cannibal Nazis take over and it's, and you were hanging out in the woods and you had all the guns, it's kind of your fault that the cannibal Nazis took over because you didn't step up to fight them or whatever, like, you know, organize with other people to, to participate in shaping the way that society should look after a, a crisis. And it's also a bad idea because like, it's all fine and good until your, I don't know, your, your kidney ruptures. I don't know if that's a thing, but like your appendix bursts there. There we go. That actually happens, you know, and your appendix bursts and you're like, oh, whoops, I'm hanging out with my brother and he's not a surgeon. Like, I guess I die now, you know, right. Um, people forget that we actually are reliant on society, not just the individual and not even just the immediate community, but we are reliant upon society in order to well, literally to be free, the the conception of freedom, I think is inverted from what it should be because my ability to think it's okay. If my appendix bursts is part of my freedom. And as much as I have freedom in any given society, you know, my ability to expect to survive various crises uh, matters to me. So the bunker mentality, I think it naturally turns people off. It naturally turns people off also because it's like a you're investing an incredible amount of resources into a not incredibly likely scenario, right? That said, okay, well, I'll defend it in again in a second. Okay, and the second type of uh, prepper mentality that I think turns people off and should turn people off is the like rugged frontiersman version, where as soon as crisis comes, we all just live off of the land. And like, like people are like prepping, and therefore I need like fire starter and like like don't get me wrong carry a lighter carry some fire starter whatever but like the odds that you're going to go off and like hunt squirrels with a hatchet like that's not most crises that you could possibly face as a human is not hunt squirrels with a hatchet and it also just replicates a lot of the problems that got us here in the first place from my point of view the like sort of rugged frontiersman way of interacting with nature instead of a more holistic approach of how to interact with nature we should not be looking to conquer during crisis. We should be looking to integrate both with the natural world and and society and communities rather than like conquering them. But I will say that also some of the negative connotations about prepping are a form of classism. I think Um, I don't mean that in this, like, I don't even mean that politically in some ways, it's just this, you know, we, we, we don't like, poor people who live in trailers or whatever, you know, that's like this like thing, you know, in our society and people who live precarious lives are more likely to do the preparation that they can. So a person with a junked car in their front yard might have a junked car because it's a similar make and model as the next car they're hoping to get. And they don't want to get rid of the parts, you know, um, they might have a scarcity mindset that comes from the way that they've been living. And so there's a, a little bit of a, like, 
we also kind of don't want to admit that things might go bad. So I would actually argue that when you find the like regular preppers, like the preppers that I'm not arguing that we all become, you become friends with them um, because most of them probably aren't really planning to like hole up with shotguns and shoot anyone who approaches their stash of food. Like most of them probably would be willing to share. But again, we, we shouldn't look to replicate this version of prepping and whether or not prepping is a useful word. Like I have, I have guests on the show all the time who are like, I didn't want to be on the show because the word prepping. And I'm like, well, you, you do all of these things that like absolutely map to prepping. And they're like, yeah, but I hate the word. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> that's fine. I, I don't want to get hung up on words here. And, and resiliency is a more important concept than, you know, I use individual and community preparedness. That's the like tagline of what my show is about. But, um, but building resilient communities and being individually resilient is probably a better framework. So I love that. I think your realistic view of preparedness is one of the big reasons why Corey and I wanted to have you on the show. <laughs> and you talked a little bit about your journey just in the context of why you started the podcast. And you, you mentioned mm-hmm. a couple of things around off-grid living and personal preparedness. But what has that part of it looked like? for you? What, what has preparedness looked like in your life? So prior to my current living situation, I'm very proudly currently on grid and have been for about the past six months. But prior to that, the last four or five years, I've been living on, I guess you could call it a farm uh, that is entirely off grid in, in a rural part of Western North Carolina. And, you know, I spent the first several years there living in a barn and generating my own electricity with solar panels and cooking on a propane stove and heating my house with a propane heater because we messed up the install of our chimney uh, and had to fix it before we could install a wood burning stove. And, you know, the, the shower was rainwater catchment uh, that I built with a, a propane. And, and I mean, I call it off grid, but you know, we went to the hardware store to get propane, you know, um, but we would go and get propane and then use that to power an on-demand water heater and build a shower, a rainwater shower. Actually, I kind of miss that. Um, I, that's the nicest shower I've ever regularly had access to in my life. It was beautiful in the middle of this field, um, like old barnwood siding and everything and, you know, made by, by me and my friends. And then while I was doing that, I was also building a cabin on the same property um, up in, up in the hills a little bit. And it was just a 12 by 12 A-frame cabin. And I moved into that all before the pandemic. And the, the interesting test of my own preparedness or whatever is that I, I built the cabin to just be a bedroom because I was planning on having access to both the community space of the barn where I kept an office and also being able to drive into town and access internet and you know recharge my battery. I had, sol- I had solar panels and stuff, but I would also use like portable rechargeable batteries and things like that. And if I wanted to go work on a computer all day, I would just go into town, sit in a coffee shop. And, you know, so I was reliant upon access to uh, civilization or whatever. Uh, And then the pandemic hit and the way that um, my personal physical and mental health works is that especially at the beginning of the pandemic, I was particularly susceptible um, to, to COVID. And so I chose to be more isolated than most of the people that I was around. And so it was actually a test of my preparedness. You know, I mean, one of the things that happened at the very beginning of the pandemic, you know, my, my mother cares for uh, 
my elderly grandmother. And she was like, well, how am I going to go see her? There's no N95 masks anywhere. And I was like, well, I can mail you some, you know, um, because I kept them around for earthquakes. Um, you know, and I, I hadn't like hoarded them. Right. I don't think it was like a stockpile. I had like 10, you know, um, and I was able to get some to some frontline nurses and hold on to some for grocery shopping and things like that. And then live off of my own food supplies. This is not the healthiest way I've ever lived. The only green food I ate for a while at the beginning of the pandemic, before we figured out that surfaces are kind of chill, was um, wild greens from the forest uh, and canned food. And I lived off of that for a month or two before we kind of got a better sense. And I, I was able to sort of access groceries again. And that's my own, you know, like I didn't need to do that. I thought I needed to do it. In retrospect, I did not, you know, but it was an interesting test. And I, you know, it's funny to watch preparedness, you know, prepper forums around this time before the right wing stopped, when, when it, once it like stopped believing in COVID and things like that. Um, you know, preparedness forums were really interesting. And there were a lot of people just honestly being like, wow, I thought I was prepared and I am not, you know, because you find all of the like holes in your system when you actually have to put it to a test. You know, when you describe that, it sounds very challenging. It's difficult. And <laughs> I, I listened to an episode of your podcast where you spoke about your experience with off-grid living and mm -hmm. nothing, nothing about it is easy or convenient. And so I'm curious, mm -hmm. what do you feel like, at least before COVID-19, what were your motivating factors? Was it primarily necessity or fear for what was to come or, or a feeling of responsibility and taking care of the environment and your resources? What would you say led you toward that lifestyle? Nothing so noble. Uh, I... I wound up in that lifestyle because the sense of adventure that it offered in my twenties, um, I was involved in a lot of sort of direct action activism and, and forest defense and things like that in my twenties. And I, I really came to, to like it. Um, and I liked the sense that every day was different from the last. Uh, I enjoyed that me and my friends together came up with all of our food each day Get, getting out of the rat race really was the primary motivation for me. And yeah, getting out of the rat race. And then you, you fall into this thing though, where you, um, you do that long enough and it kind of becomes not only the thing that you're used to, but it actually gets a little bit hard to get out of. And so it was also on some level economic necessity for a while, because you don't become remarkably employable by not, you know, people like joke about like the gap in your resume. And I'm like, I don't, I didn't have a resume, you know, um, fortunately, and, and I actually, I work in the, for a nonprofit now, um, fortunately accomplishing things actually does look good to many people. And, and I accomplished a lot of things. They just don't look good in the sort of classic, I want to get a job at a coffee shop kind of way. Um, and so there's a lot to recommend for it, but there's also a lot of downsides and, and people romanticize it in kind of a, a bad way. I romanticized it in probably an unhealthy way. And I think that, you know, kept me trapped in sometimes physically unhealthy environments for too long, but I also don't regret it. I don't know. And I would tell people who are like 20, try it. So I actually saw on your, um, one of your YouTube videos that you had 
where you kind of walked through your cabin and at the very beginning, um, it kind of popped up on the screen and said something like off-grid living, it's not the solution to all your problems or something like that. And I see a lot of people who, who seem to think like, okay, so if we're slowly collapsing and things are going to get worse, I need to acquire 50 acres out in the woods and I need to live, you know, I need to go do this, live off of, live off grid. And um, why do you say it's not the solution to all the problems and what is? So it's not the solution on two different levels. And one solution is like the personal level. Like everyone, you know, fantasizes about tiny house life and almost everyone who moves down to tiny house life regrets it. As far as I understand, almost anyone who's coming from having more and moving to less and not like, like simplicity. I think people respond really well to, right. But the moving into a 12 by 12 cabin or a van or something like that is very unlikely to make you as happy as you might think it will. Um, because actually access to resources is uh, something that helps make us happy when, when things are simpler and easier for us. Um, and there's exceptions to that. It's, it's not cut and dry. Um, but basically, you know, people would always be like, wow, you live in your van, your van. It's so romantic, like hashtag van life. And I'm like, no, I, I live in my van because like, that's how I can afford to have shelter while I travel. Um, you know, it, it wasn't, I liked my van. I would even romanticize life in my van. Sometimes, you know, I'd be out in the woods and a storm would be all around me and it would be wonderful. And other times it'd be a lightning storm. And I would be kind of fully aware that a fiberglass roof is not actually make the Faraday cage that makes vehicles safe from uh, lightning. Um, you know, and then I would just not sleep all night and it would be terrible. And, you know, or like hitchhiking when you can't get a ride, it's the worst feeling in the world. Um, but, uh, but on a social level, also, I don't believe off-grid life is the solution. Um, for one thing, when it comes to, if your goal as a, as someone who's seeking preparedness, if your goal is to have the most reliable source of electricity, that's the grid. The grid is the most reliable source of electricity that we've developed. Is it perfect? No. Does it have absolute like complicated economic and ecological considerations? Yes. Um, so does off-grid life, like, because you're just being powered by batteries. So it's like, you're not, you know, you're, you're now a, a lithium powered house instead of a, you know, coal powered house and lithium isn't mined in very nice ways either. Um, and it's not one for one. I think you're probably having a, you have a less of an ecological footprint when you have to acquire the electricity yourself. And I actually think that's very healthy for people is to learn how to um, not take things for granted, not take your heat for granted, not take your power for granted, not take your water for granted. Um, I think learning to not take things for granted is absolutely useful. I don't know. Okay. And so then the other thing is, is that like back to the land is not a sustainable solution. One, because there's a ton of people, just a ton of us. And, you know, there was this thing I read a long time ago that I don't have a source on, but, you know, a thing I read that during the Great Depression, within like a year, squirrel and deer were almost wiped out in the continent, continental United States or like dropped to record lows or something like that. Obviously, they made quite a comeback. But that was what happened when everyone ran out of food and started hunting. And I'm not telling people not to hunt. I think actually learning how to hunt is an incredibly important skill. But when we all go do it, 
there's not going to be any deer left. It's the same mentality that got us the climate change situation in the first place. You think I'm going to dump this in the ocean. The ocean's so big, it's basically gone. Or I'm going to dump this in the sky. It's so big, it's basically gone. The only thing that's infinite is space. And we don't exactly put things into space in a way that makes them infinitely far away. So we probably shouldn't even treat space as infinite. So I don't know. I mean, I'm also a hypocrite to tell people these things. I live, I, I moved on grid and I live um, even more rural and like it. Um, I'm even farther away from, you know, population centers that, that I interact with on any regular basis. But I think that has a lot to do with personal preference. I also think that people are the most important resource that we have. We have this tendency to view people as like the enemy in times of crisis. And that can happen. But by and large, everything I understand from the sort of academic study of disaster studies is that people work together in times of crisis as their natural instinct. Sometimes when scarcity kicks in a little bit later, it gets more complicated. I think it actually mostly gets complicated when systems of control try to exert themselves, whether they're the previous existing systems of control, like um, the economic system or government, or whether they're like new systems of control, like you know the warlords that we all worry about and like our Mad Max scenarios. But prior to that, and possibly alongside of that, people work together naturally. Um, so I think for many, I mean, it's funny because we got hit with COVID. It's like the one crisis that being more alone is better. You know, um, like most crises, you want to be around people. When you talk about those relationships and people, I, I love mm -hmm. something that I came across. I think you wrote it on a blog post or an article. You said something to the effect of skills are more important than gear and relationships are more important than skills. And you, you kind of outlined this hierarchy. Uh, mm -hmm. I'd love to hear you elaborate on that a little bit. And I'm, and I'm also curious if I can ask it as kind of a two-part question. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that hierarchy is practical and applicable to everybody? Or is it more just a preference based on your own value mm -hmm. system? I actually really like the second part of that question because the way I've been readdressing that particular thing is I've been thinking about less as a hierarchy and more as um, I like to think of things in terms of triangles because I, I, I tend to dislike dichotomies, this like either, or, you know, like this thing's good, this thing's bad is, is often a very dangerous way of thinking. There's, there's exceptions. Right. And instead I like to see how each thing is unique and interrelates with the other things. And so I tend to currently map out like, you know, in the, the sort of longer form writing I'm doing about this kind of work. I'm now seeing it as this triangle where you have three sides. One side is skills, one side is gear, and one side is relationships. And I think probably like at the end of the day, the most likely to save your life, I kind of believe in that hierarchy a little bit with like relationships, then skill, then skills, then gear. But I think that also a lot of that is mostly just an attempt to invert what is presented as the usual hierarchy of that. You know, it, it, we, we tend to be seeing, seeing gear as most important than skills, than relationships, if they're thought of at all. And so I think in some ways that was just a reaction to that, which of course falls into the dichotomous thinking I'd like to avoid. And different ones can be useful for different people because it really, you should play to your strengths and your interests. You know, if you, um, if you're like a hard introvert with no community and a tech job and not much time. Maybe you get gear, you know, maybe that's what you put your focus on. 
or if you have a lot of space, then maybe gear is your thing. Or maybe, you know, you really like learning new skills and don't have much money. Like maybe skills is your thing. Or maybe you're like the party organizer and you, you know, put together your like local dance parties and things, you know, maybe learning to develop relationships because relationships isn't just like, it's not like I know a plumber, right? I mean, that's part of it, right? But it's not about like collecting people, like you're collecting gear or skills. And instead it's like learning how to foster relationships and foster community. Because I would argue that when we, when systems of power disappear, which is what I think most crises uh, rely on, is that they become crises because the things, the, the structures of organization and, and control that we're used to disappear. A lot of people, most people probably, and, and not in a like, haha, these people are sheep, but like sheep, but uh, people don't know what to do. Um, and they don't know how to do things in the context without the context that they're used to. And tend to, I believe, follow the first good idea that is presented. Um, I've been in a few of these situations myself where you have like, you know, like a small scale social situation, like you're at a party and the person who threw it isn't there. And you're just like 20 strangers and you're sitting around and you're like, well, what do we do? And the first person is like, I got an icebreaker game. That's what y'all are doing. Right. And someone who's good at relationships and community, that might be the thing you're doing or someone who's used to consensus building or someone who's good at uh, conflict resolution, or, you know, just kind of figuring out what everyone needs is in a really good place to not take charge, but instead to present a collective way of all of us taking charge together and finding out what we all have to offer each other. Um, And so I, I think that that is a, I don't know, it's not actually what you asked at all, but I think it is a crucial skill. And I think that we need to make sure to not think of it as like this, like tit for tat, like, well, you know, I fixed that guy's car. So uh, he better take out my ruptured appendix or whatever. But instead it's like, well, I fixed that car and he took out someone's ruptured appendix and that person took care of my grandma and my grandma feeds me. So, you know, it, it it's more convoluted and, and less bookkeepy, you know, like we shouldn't keep track of like this exactly who's doing what. Yeah. And I love that. Cause I think it's focused a lot more on community and, and less on seeing relationships as a transactional thing. Yeah. So I, I think it's spot on. This kind of leads me to a question about mutual aid. Have you been involved in a lot of mutual aid, organize, I guess, activities in the past? Uh, over the course of the past long number of years, yes. But I have actually not during COVID been as much of a part of, I've been a, a cheerleader for and an occasional contributor, like financial and material contributor to mutual aid organizations, but I'm not currently organizing a mutual aid organization. So what benefits do you see in mutual aid? Um, and how, how do you think that is something that could be applied in a preparedness setting? I, I'm a huge, as I said, cheerleader for, for mutual aid. I think mutual aid is, you know, the answer to everything. It's not the answer to everything, but it is a, a big chunk of all of the answers that I can ever come up with to problems, um, which is basically just ways of fostering organic care between people and communities. And it is what builds resilience and resilience is what gets us through crisis because apocalypse isn't apocalypse. Like, or, you know, it, it, again, it's not this like moment, right? It's a process. And it's more about the disappearing of the ways that we normally take care of ourselves and take care of each other. And so coming up with solutions that meet our needs, uh, I would say is a revolutionary process. And it's, 
essential. I don't know. I don't know what to say besides like mutual aid's like the best thing we got going. Yeah, I love that. I, I've seen a lot of mutual aid activity throughout the pandemic, and it's been fascinating and interesting to see people come together and help each other in a way that, like you said, is not tit for tat, right? It's not transactional. People are just volunteering to help each other out of just mutual understanding and respect. And and it, that is the type of thing that I know we'll have to see of more and more in the future. Um, maybe one last question for me. I just wanna, wanted to ask, you know, if for our listeners who may have not started down a preparedness road at all, if there was one thing that you could tell them to do today or tomorrow to set themselves on the right path towards preparedness, what would that be? I'm going to answer along material answer, a material answer rather than the like, because, okay, to cheat, I'm going to say from a relationship's point of view, uh, get to know your neighbors, the, the people who are physically close to you rather than the people that you like are men, many of the people that you're going to have to rely upon in a lot of situations. So at least know who they are, at least know who their names, you know, know their names and not be a stranger to them. Um, from a, from a sort of gear or material point of view, the point I think is less to be ready for the end of the world. I mean, like, that's great too, right? Have seeds, have land, have all the stuff in place, right? You know, have your aquaponics set up and, and there's like so much you can do. It's an infinite amount of, that you can put into preparedness, um, which if it's fun for you, you should do. Um, but we also have to live our lives here and now and, and get joy when we can, because there's no saying what we will or won't survive period. Right. You could have all the food in the world and the nuke falls 10 miles away from you and you're dead, you know? Um, but most things that we have to suffer through are temporary. And so just have some food and water, have some food, some water, some extra meds of the any meds you take, if you can get them, have your basic life necessities, for like a week. And that gets you through, I think like 90% of the bad stuff that might come your way in terms of a, a crisis. And it also, one of the reasons I do push for like material preparedness is that it, it means you rely less on, it's like good to rely on each other, but it's also better if we can to, when it comes time to get everyone a gas mask, because suddenly the air is poison. If you already have yours, you're putting less of a strain on whatever structures you all are developing to get people gas masks. And so in as much as you can, having your own shit together has a, a real inherent value. Excellent. Yeah, I love that. If you're taking care of yourself, that's less that other people have to take care of you. They can focus on taking care of each other. And that's more time that you can put towards focusing on other people as well. Thank you so much for that answer. Kellen, did you have any other questions you wanted to ask? Uh, I I did have one, but it's just so outside of this conversation. It's more just out of curiosity. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, we have talked in the past about systems and complexity and mm. the, the structure and, and everything that goes along with that. And, and there's a lot of things there that are problematic. I heard you just briefly reference at the beginning of the conversation, something about being an anarchist. Mm -hmm. And as a genuine question, I don't know much about that. And I'm just curious if, uh, from your perspective, that has anything to do with the societal issues you see that could lead toward collapse or has any uh, place in the context of preparedness? Yeah. I mean, um, they're very related for me. I try not to, you know, 
propagandize about it specifically, because one of the things from my point of view about being an anarchist is it's not a matter of trying to make everyone else agree with me. But in the the shortest understanding, I would say is that an anarchist is someone who's seeking a society without um, systems of control, like, or systemic oppression, like systemic hierarchies of, of race, of um, access to capital, of authority in a raw point of view. You know, I'm like, historically, you could say that anarchism is a, a Western political tradition that rejects both the state and capitalism, right? That would be like, kind of the origins of it from a Western point of view. I would say that most modern anarchists have a look at would absolutely include like patriarchy and would include uh, white supremacy and colonialism in these things that we are, are critical of and reject. But on a kind of philosophical level, I would say that anarchism is largely about um, the relationship between responsibility and freedom and that we need both and that we as individuals can express both, that we can be, you know, I think that there's this mainstream conception of anarchism, which is absolute freedom, like absolute freedom has a million definitions and I have mine, but everyone runs around, does whatever they want. That's like the conception of anarchy. And, and, you know, is one of the dictionary definitions of anarchy as a system without any forms of control organization is one of the definitions of anarchy. One of the other definitions of anarchy is, is an anarchistic society, right? And an anarchistic society is largely not one without forms of organization, but one without things that could be construed as the state and things that have like a monopoly of violence uh, on a given area as like kind of an outdated, but a still used, still, I, st- I think there's still some value in understanding a state as the monopoly of violence, even though modern anthropological stuff is starting to shy away from that, including actually the work of anarchist anthropologist, David Graeber. Um, but so how it relates to all this community and preparedness stuff, I think that when I think about freedom and, and responsibility going hand in hand, it's about individual and community for me. I think that one of the false dichotomies that we're presented with that is possibly the one that I'm the most frustrated with at all is this concept that you have to pick between the individual and community. And so if you pick the individual and you care about individual liberty, you get um, the sort of uh, American conception of libertarianism, which as a random historical footnote was literally taken from anarchism, which was a libertarian socialist tendency. Um, It was like consciously taken. They were like, haha, we have this word now. Um, And it was because libertarian was the word used to describe, to separate out the anarchists from the Marxists, essentially from the, the, the state communists who believe that you should take the state before dissolving it into a stateless society. Anarchists have always believed that the means and the ends are inseparable. Or so you either pick the individual or you pick the community and they both have absolute like moral underpinnings, right? Of course you pick the community. Of course you pick individual liberty. And it's like, no one should be making you choose from my point of view. Um, what is best for me as an individual is a healthy community that takes care of me. That is what maximizes my liberty. And what is good for the community, I believe, is free thinking, autonomous individuals who are able to learn how to become their best selves and offer what they have best to offer to society. You know, you see this all the time in like younger activists, and I mean not to disparage younger activists in this. You join a a collective or you join a a project and you kind of do what's expected of you. But then five, 10 years later, instead you start doing what you're drawn to doing 
And that's when you make real interesting contributions. Um, and so I, I believe that given my freedom to choose what, how best to serve the community is, is what's best for the community. So for me, anarchism leads to me to all of these, uh, this critique of, of false dichotomies and this critique of like individual preparedness, but also this critique of like, don't bother be prepared, just rely on society, the like stick your heads in the sand version of it too. So for me, something that's really interesting to think about and something I've thought a lot about is how as we sort of work our way through collapse, um, one of the, the biggest issues that I see is the power dynamic and the struggle for power that's always there. Um, and what appeals to me about anarchism is this idea that we can we can step away. We need to step away from this power dynamic. We can get rid of hierarchical structures and do exactly what you're talking about, which is through individualism, but, but together as a community, by, by each sort of contributing our strengths, we can be the best communities that we can be. And anarchist organizing um, and, and organizations to me are fascinating and something I've been trying to learn more about. I'll admit that I've been struggling to understand how organization works within anarchist communities, but it's something that I, maybe we can talk about this, but I think it's one that's necessary and very important because looking towards the future, I don't want to see the power struggles. I want to see the communities come together and anarchism seems like the right answer, you know, if that answer is there for how to, or how to organize. Yeah. And, you know, it might be one of the answers, right? Um, you know, there's, there's other systems, there's other philosophical ideas and there's other things that do a similar process you know i i sometimes lazily not lazily intentionally uh, use the the word anarchic for something that is like maybe not coming from the the western anarchistic back anarchist background but is like similar enough to be useful from my point of view um and to be aligned with um you know and i think that there's a bunch of like actually existing societies that we have a lot to learn from we shouldn't just like go copy them, but we can be certainly like in an alliance with, you know, the, the Zapatistas in Mexico who are, you know, not anarchists, but they're not something. I mean, they are something else. There's Zapatistas, there's Zapatistas, but you know, they're, they're not like, they're not Maoists or Leninists or something like that, you know, um, or classical libertarians or in, in, whatever, you know, um, they're, they're doing their own thing. And, you know, you get a similar thing in the autonomous region in Northern Syria. Um, and, but yeah, I, I, I do think it could be, you know, I, I say this because I don't want to say like, oh, well, like go join your local anarchist and everything will be solved. Right. You know, cause we, we still have to do this visioning together, um, whether or not you identify with the same like words I do. I'm not trying to talk you not into not thinking it's cool. I just want to no, that's that's actually really appreciated. Uh, something that I'm taking away from this episode that I'm really appreciating is in multiple different areas. You've talked about dichotomies and how we can we can all get along. We don't. Ha it's not we're not paired into teams, right? Um, even when you were talking about preppers who might be right wing preppers, you, we should befriend them. It's not like we're prepping the right way and they're prepping the wrong way, and there's this dichotomy there. It's we're all working towards this better future. And here you're saying, like, I think that anarch anarchism, you know, to me, it speaks about, you know, why this, why this is good and, and where I think we should head. But you're also saying, I'm not saying just go join it. And I just love that there's opportunity and, and 
space for everybody to come up together with the answers instead of just being told what to do and saying, just trust me because I'm, I'm saying it. Yeah, exactly. Although there are some people who are my enemies, but usually they make themselves very clear. Usually they're like, <laughs> yes. we're Nazis. And I'm like, great, we're enemies. <laughs> valid, valid. Great. Well, hey, this has been an awesome time. I'm so glad that you joined us. Um, you know, I hope that you've enjoyed it as well. Maybe we'll we'll see about having you back on because in the future we plan on taking this road a lot deeper as far as preparation goes, um, this conversation around community and organizing. So thank you so much, Margaret. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.